Slaughtering Alliance. And here your host, Dandre Leyland. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights. Once synonymous with science fiction, the phrase that book Rogers stuff once called to mind everything the average person thought about the science fiction genre. Ray guns, rocket ships, and robots. Certainly in 1928, when the then christened Anthony Rogers made his debut, he was something pretty unique in science fiction, the space adventurer a swashbuckler. Given the nickname Book by John F. Deal, the novel Armageddon 2419 was adapted into the comic strips in 1929, and then in 1932, Book Rogers became the first major science fiction radio drama. 1939 saw Larry Buster Crabbe take on the role for a 12-part serial. All of this is to say that Book Rogers was around for quite a while before many people of my generation discovered him. Book Rogers in the 25th century arrived on UK shores via the medium of cinema. Despite being shot as a TV movie and potential pilot for a television revival, the money Battlestar Galactica had accrued when it was recut as a two-hour theatrical release was enough for Universal Pictures to try the same tack with Book. Only this time, unlike Galactica, which only had a Canadian and overseas release initially, the pilot was released in North America before the series debuted on US television, which was in September of 1979. A worldwide release quickly followed. In the UK, this cinema release meant that when ITV bought the series for transmission in the early evening Saturday tea time slot, the pilot was omitted from transmission, which meant the UK screenings began with the two-hour episode The Planet of the Slave Girls. The film received a fair amount of publicity, as I recall, with full-page adverts in the likes of Starburst magazine and in a few of the Marvel UK comics of the time, all plugging the release date of 26th of July 1979. Given that the TV show would only land on UK shows in August of 1980, that gave it almost a solid year of filling in matinees, double features and such before the series debuted. I know I first saw it as a double bill with Mission Galactica The Cylon Attack, the second feature to be cobbled together from episodes of Battlestar Galactica. There were a number of scenes cut from the theatrical release that were present in the pilot version, and as we go through I will point out those as well as pertinent alterations from the novel. The pilot to Buck Rogers is a thing of beauty, if one's idea of beauty is a dated 1970s disco flick attempting to be futuristic. The movie opens with a prologue voiced by the Fat Man of Jake and the Fat Man fame, William Conrad, not dissimilar to the one that would open the series. Conrad sets up the book played by Gil Gerard and now renamed William Rogers for the traditional no good reason, was a lone astronaut launched by NASA on an ambiguous deep space probe in the year 1987. Book was frozen by forces beyond comprehension, a great way of ducking out on using any real science, and from there the credits roll and we are subjected to a wonderfully cheesy James Bond pastiche. Ostensibly supposed to represent Book's past and future melding together, Book instead sees Colonel Wilma Deering, played by Erin Gray, and Princess Ardala, the magnificent Pamela Hensley, alongside numerous unnamed blondes with Farrahur and large Deirdre specks, writhing around on the film's logo in silver bikinis and one pieces as the theme song Suspension, sung by Kip Lennon, wobbles on about being far beyond the world I've known, far beyond my time. You really do need to YouTube this, lovely listener. It has to be seen to be believed. But here's the audio.
some truths to reveal What thoughts are fantasy What memories real Long before this life of mine Long before this time What was there who cared to make it be Something I Draconian Princess Ardala and thawed out. Why people are surprised that a people known as Draconians and Nefarious is beyond my comprehension, but nevertheless, Earth is under the impression that Ardala is part of a mission of peace. Believing Book to be a spy of some kind, Ardala's first officer, Kane, played here by Henry Silver, states that Book should be sent back to Earth. If he lands with no issues rather than being fried by the Earth's defence system, then he was a ploy of some kind by the Earth Directorate. Pamela Hensley, after gyrating provocatively in the opening titles, gets a proper introduction here, and is every bit as slinky and scantily clad as one would expect from a Glen A. Larson production. While it's not quite as campy as she would be in the series that followed, Hensley is clearly enjoying herself in the femme fatale role, and her fun, flirty, campy space princess would return in numerous follow-up episodes of the show, worrying as little as TV standards of decency would allow for the time. The telefilm is also interesting in that it jumps straight in with Book being thawed out in 2491. There's not a half hour of Book on Earth in 1987, no tedious preamble, the movie just gets on with it. It's also clear that Book, at the very least, owes more of a debt to Larson's previous sci-fi drama, the aforementioned Battlestar Galactica, than previous incarnations of the character. Book's space module was used in an episode of that show, albeit painted orange. The spaceship launch tubes are a direct rip-off of Galactica, and the sound effects and sets all bear a striking similarity to those seen on the previous show, even if the sound effects for both were straight from the Universal Studios archives labelled Futuristic Buttons Being Pressed. 
Even the Earth ships were rejected designs for the colonial vipers. Buck is escorted through the Earth Defence Shield by cold fish Colonel Wilmer Deering, who arrests Buck for singing, and Dr. Hewer, played by a dignified Tim O'Connor, starts interrogating Buck via the use of an ambuquad, Tweaky, played by Felix Silla and voiced by Mel Blanc. Around Tweaky's neck is a large silver dollar with a light show face named Dr. Theopolis, who informs Buck he is 504 years out of time. Wilma, still convinced Buck is a spy for Ardala, takes Buck to expose him by touring him around the malls of New Chicago and explains that the Draconian Peace Treaty is to help Earth rebuild and prevent pirate attacks that have been cutting off Earth's shipping lanes. Buck tries to point out that the blast marks on his lunar module are those of a pirate ship and Adala is lying through her horned hats about being unarmed. Buck says he wants to see the real Chicago, not the malls and fake environs that make up new Chicago, and leaves. Wilma goes to shoot him, but then changes her mind. This scene is trimmed in the TV version. Wilma is not seen drawing her gun, and it cuts to a lengthy scene edit out of the theatrical version, in which Theo and Tweaky introduce Buck to his new apartment. To be fair, it makes more sense being excised, given that Buck is still suspected of being a traitor, so giving him a flash and swanky apartment that responds to his voice seems a tad premature. There's a neat gag in this scene, though. Theo tells Buck that he just has to say, I want to go to bed, and the bed does some cool 20th century type stuff. Buck asks if it can be programmed to operate off something a tad more subtle. Theo doesn't understand what he's referring to. There's a lot of that as it goes through. The set design implies the film follows the Logan's Run approach to the future, i.e. that Farrah Fawcett hairstyles will remain in fashion, and that shopping malls will provide the architectural designs of the future. To be fair, one only has to walk down a high street of homogenised shops to see that that last one wasn't that far off. Book, Tweaky and Theo then go to the remains of Chicago, a place now called Anarchia. They aren't big on subtle names in the 25th century. The scenes in The Ruined Remains were quite scurry as a kid. Buck and Tweaky are pursued by the radioactive occupants of Anarchia, keen to strip Tweaky and Theo of the valuable electronic circuitry. It's in this scene we get one of the better human moments of the telly movie when Buck finds the graves of his parents. Theo's description of the fall of civilization is quite grotesque, and it's the darkest the series ever really got. The series never went outside to Anarchia again, and the issues of the people who lived out there never addressed. The fight between Buck and the mutants is longer in the theatrical version and a little more violent, and there's even a line of dialogue where Buck describes Wilma as ballsy that is omitted from the TV version. Wilma arrives with a squad just in time and saves Buck and the robots. Buck is then tried and found guilty of treason, primarily the actions of one council member, Dr. Apol, and is sentenced to execution. Wilma, who is thawing towards Buck, comes up with the idea to test Buck's knowledge of the Draconian flagship, and Dr. Hewer convinces the Council to allow a stay of execution and allow the visit. Dr. Apol goes on record as being against the decision, a subplot that is completely excised from the theatrical version. Buck and Wilma journey to the Draconia, and they are attacked by pirates. Obviously, all are ruse by Ardala and Kane, but the humans are far too stupid to see it. The special effects in the space pirate scenes aren't that bad by TV standards, and I wonder if Universal, knowing they would release this as a movie, decided to spend a bit of extra money on the FX. They clearly didn't spend it on the sets, which are quite cheap-looking. The pirates make short work of the Earthers, and Buck, having had enough of his team taking a beating, switches off his targeting computer and engages in the kind of outer space dogfight hated by scientists, but loved by viewers, as his natural 20th century reflexes and skill make up for the computer's lack of programming. 
And all of them requests Buck's presence at the ball to celebrate the Draconian Earth Alliance after he single-handedly saved them from those nasty pirates, a move that doesn't sit well with Wilma. The ball is one of the best-remembered scenes in the film for a number of reasons. Firstly, Princess Adala seems to think that one shows up to a formal ball wearing little more than beachwear and an ornate hat. Secondly, Buck teaches the stuffed shirts of the 25th century how to boogie. He tells the keyboard player to let go and get down, but he seems to go for a more disco beat than rock. Wilma, ever the prude, thinks that the dancing is disgusting. Yet in a scene cut from the TV version, Wilma offers to take Buck back to her place, but he declines. He prefers bad girls, I guess. The scene is very different depending upon which version you are watching. Some dialogue that is trimmed from one is present in the other, and vice versa. The TV version is a bit longer, and the theatrical release has the end cut off. Buck procures a headache tablet off Tweaky, any bets that'll come in useful later, and joins up with Ardala, pretending he's a traitor, only to drug her with the painkiller and set about destroying Ardala's fleet, with Tweaky and Theo's help, who followed Buck against orders. It's all pretty routine stuff, with an ADR-looped line for Buck explaining that the pirates are draconians for those that haven't figured it out. To be fair, Dr. Theopolis hasn't figured it out, and even when Buck explains the plot, again, Theo still struggles with its complexity, but presumably the story of the Trojan horse was lost in the Holocaust. The finale has lots of explosions and just in the nick of time during do, with dogfights and fistfights between Buck and Tiger Man. The theatrical version differs again here from the TV version, with Buck clearly saying shit during the fight, and then taking Tiger Man out with a well-placed kick to the Johnsons, and then, rather brutally, blowing him to pieces. Needless to say, these were trimmed for the TV, making the fight rather nonsensical. TV censors apparently thought it was okay to blow a man to pieces, but kicking him in the nads was a no-no. Overall edits to the TV version have mostly been minor changes in the second half. Adala's father, Draco, who was a big deal in the marketing, only ends up with one scene in the finished film, and in the TV version even that one scene is edited. As it turns out, Draco would never be seen in the series. More of Wilma thawing towards Buck is cut as well in the movie's final scene, as this wouldn't have led to the platonic brother-sister relationship they had later. The biggest alteration and largest single edit occurs at the end. The theatrical version ends rather abruptly with Buck, saved from the exploding draconian ship by Wilma, and then a quick reprise of the suspension theme from the opening. But the TV version has a five-minute scene at the end in which Dr. Hewer offers Buck a job working for the Earth Defence Directorate, which Buck accepts on an informal, case-by-case basis. As with all movies of this time period, there was a tie-in novel. Written by Addison E. Steele, a pseudonym for Richard A. Lupoff, the novel is best described as workmanlike. It features very little enhancements and very little in the way of fleshing out characters or motivations. Unlike the telefilm, it does feature a small prologue set in 1987, establishing the political situation behind NASA embarking upon this mission, and a few short paragraphs about the reaction of the world to Buck's disappearance. An interesting deviation in the novel has the trial scene from the midpoint of the movie moved up. Following the confrontation in the hangar bay, Wilma does shoot Buck, and he is tried and, thanks to council member named Dr. Apol, remember him, convicted of treason and dispatched to the outside world, a world now ravaged by the effects of the nuclear war. Theo and Tweaky are sentenced with him, which seemed a tad harsh. Can you imagine if lawyers that didn't win today were given the same sentence as their clients? 
In the film, Buck, Tweaky and Theo go outside of their own violation. This reordering means Wilma retrieving Buck from Anarchia is so he can tell them about the Draconia flagship, but also to save his life, Wilma's thawing towards him being a more prevalent subplot in the book and theatrical version. The novel, however, does have an interesting ending that ties up a loose end left dangling in the film. The final chapter has Dr. Apol found guilty of being a pre-programmed double agent, highlighting the problem of relying on automatons for everything. This explains how the Draconians got so far with the peace negotiations. They had an inside man, and how the Draconians were able to counteract the Directorate's computer control. I presume this subplot was filmed for the movie. After all, Buck does have a line that says, get rid of whoever's programming your defence computers, but dropped for whatever reason, as Apol is the only member of the Council apart from Theo to have a decent speaking part, which normally implies a larger slice of the pie. The telefilm has moments to like, and the series that followed started off quite well, but dipped a bit as it went on. The Planet of the Slave Girls, a two-hour episode, was a fun way to kick off the series proper, and erring this first in lieu of the pilot makes sense, as ITV probably wanted a feature-length launch for the show, especially it was programmed against Doctor Who. In this one, Jack Palance shows up as the bad guy, highlighting the show's propensity for hiring campy adversaries for Bug a la 60s Batman. Roddy McDowell is also here, but the real reason I suspect that this episode was heard first in the UK is the presence of Buster Crab, a hype-worthy event that probably got a few column inches in the tabloids. The series had lurid pulp titles like Unchained Woman, which featured Jamie Lee Curtis in a guest starring role, Planet of the Amazon Women, and Vegas in Space, in which former Joker Cesar Romero cropped up. The plot to kill a city was another two-hour show and a fun romp, this time guest-starring Frank Gorshin, and The Return of the Fighting 69th features Peter Graves as an over-the-hill commander, returning to show the kids how it's done. The series then introduces Gary Coleman as a kid, Hieronymus Fox, who is also from the 20th century in a piece of stunt casting that's diverting if nothing else. The best of the early episodes, though, is Escape from Wedded Bliss. Adala returns, wearing as little as Pam Lansley can get away with, with a bizarre device aimed at destroying New Chicago, and then, by orders of her father, Draco, the Earth. Why Adala and Kay, now played by Michael and Sarah, were not severely punished by Draco, as indicated in the movie, goes unexplained. Presumably, the producers assumed viewers will have only seen the TV version, which had this scene edited out. Nevertheless, the princess is about to take control of Draconia from her father, and to this end she needs to wed the most physically perfect specimen of man in the entire galaxy. Guess who that is? At yet another polyester party thrown in her honour, Adala will spur Earth if Buck agrees to be her man. As with the movie, this scene is a fine example of the disco-style entertainment provided by the 25th century. Apparently foreign and alien dignitaries are treated to a disco-style glitter explosion on roller skates. It's a wonder any peace accord was ever signed with this level of entertainment on display. Book runs outside the city. Surprisingly, not due to the entertainment, but to avoid marrying Ardala, the Earth's defence director, would be more than willing to turn him over to save their own skins. But once again, it's a ruse. It turns out, via a bucket load of exposition, that after the previous encounter, the chief engineer of the Draconia fled turned to Buck, and Buck set him up outside the city, got him some used clothes from Obi-Wan Kenobi, some food, and placed him in some idyllic garden spot near a stream. Sadly, this scene, in addition to being incredibly contrived and convenient, also contradicts the movie. Where is the ruined civilization, contaminated mutant humans that once lived outside? Why does the outside not so much resemble anarchy anymore, but a sunny SoCal Sunday morning? 
Anyway, Buck gets the schematics of the Draconia off the man and agrees to accompany Ardala. Buck is told the marriage ceremony is a three-tiered process. First, he and the princess get jiggy with it, then he has to fight Tigerman for her honour, and then, finally, they're wed. Tigerman seems to have fully recovered from being blown to pieces, another contradiction from the movie. In place of a wedding band, Buck will be given a collar that halves its size if Buck so much looks at another woman. Needless to say, only phase one particularly appeals to Buck. Adala falls for exactly the same trip she fell for in the movie. Buck pretends to snog her, but actually drugs her, after which he sneaks off to find the control room to deactivate the device that threatens all of Earth, but is caught by Kane, who, fed up with Rogers, simply shoots him, rather than engage in the ballet-esque kick-dancing that normally constitutes a Buck Rogers fight scene. Buck and Tigerman are oiled up and duly dispatched to fight to the death, Kirk and Spock style, only without any funky fight music. The fight is curiously anticlimactic, the lack of music being only part of the problem. Buck is looking a little out of shape, not helped by the unflattering wrestler's belt he's forced to wear, which pops off under the strain in one scene. Buck, in a surprising turnaround, refuses to kill Tigerman this time, and Adala calls the fight in favour of Buck, despite this being contrary to draconian law, and the wedding proceeds as planned. Predictably, Buck escapes, as draconian security is very lax. By smashing the collar he is about to have placed around his neck to the floor, flees, and gets to the control centre remarkably quickly, despite the ship being at least two miles across. He destroys the pyramid weapon and is about to be executed when Tigerman betrays his draconian oath, as he now feels he owes Buck a life debt. Tigerman grabs Ardala and threatens to throttle her. Surprisingly, Kane takes this in stride and allows Buck to leave, but Tigerman stays. He owed Buck his life, but now the debt is repaid, he stays to accept his fate. Escape from Wedded Bliss is a fun piece of pulpy B-movie sci-fi. It doesn't make a great deal of sense if one thinks too much about it, and it has this remarkable ability to look like there was some money spent on it, yet still appear incredibly cheap. Buck is not as wise-cracking here as he was in the pilot, but this actually makes him come across as rather boring. It's not helped by Gil Gerard, who, strips of Buck's 20th century humour and smart Alec attitude, comes across as an incredible bore. Stalwart and True is but a few steps away from being as dry as toast, and Buck was in desperate need of a character infusion, or a more charismatic lead actor if the audience were to engage with him. Aaron Gray is once again sidelined. Buck disregards the plan for Wilma to steal aboard the Draconia and deactivate the pyramid weapon as too dangerous, but there's no problem with him doing it. It would have made for a tenser episode if Wilma was on board, avoiding the Draconians and acting covertly, whilst Buck distracted them and Adala from what she was doing. Wilma is significantly toned down here from the movie, an insult to the actress and the audience. Still, enjoyable fluff if you're of a mind to appreciate it. This episode was immortalised in the sticker book, which I completed. The series seemed to hit a slump mid-season with a run of poor episodes. Poor being a relative term, obviously it's not like Buck Rogers ever hit elevated heights of excellence. Cruise Ship to the Stars was a rather dull murder mystery. Happy Birthday Buck, an adequate episode with a terrible villain and hampered by substantive performances. The worst of this midsection was easily a blast for Buck, which was a clip show from a series that had only erred 15 prior episodes. The only entertaining show from this batch was Space Vampire, a delightfully campy exercise in which Jamie Summers' boyfriend that wasn't Steve Austin, Christopher Stone, is commander of a pleasure space station that has sadly been taken over by an alien with vampiric tendencies. 
Fortunately, Book has read Bram Stoker, even if the 25th century populace have no idea who he is, and is able to stop the space vampire. Erin Gray gets a substantial role in this episode, and whilst it's largely an opportunity for her to go over the top in a way normally reserved for Pamela Hensley, she's pretty entertaining. Just when viewers are about to lose interest in the series, however, the producers bring out their ace in the hole. Princess Ardala Returns, in the imaginatively titled Ardala Returns, this time, the pouting princess returns with a plan to clone Buck after Kane's new hatchet fight has proved too much for draconian pilots. Only Buck's superior 20th century reflexes can handle the craft. Easily the best of the Ardala episodes, this one is just a hoot and a half. Gerard steps out of his coma to play three different variations of Book, a situation he seems to relish, particularly in a scene where the three Book clones try to triple date Ardala, who realises that the clones only have small aspects of Book's personality, his NUI, his boastfulness, etc., and there's no substitute for the real thing. Personally, I think she's giving Book's personality too much credit, but she seems to like him. To the writer's credit, they try to inject some much-needed characterisation into Ardala in a scene where she tells Buck that she's given up trying to break him to her will, so why doesn't he just, you know, hang around as a consort? Hensley lets her guard down a little and exposes the insecure little girl behind the petulant princess. There's a great scene when Ardala, tired of Buck's rejection, actually has a moment where she breaks down slightly, and in her realisation that all she has means nothing, she reverts to type and attacks Earth rather than face her inner demons. It almost has you feeling sorry for her, especially as it's a scene only we the audience are privy to. The episode also has some of the cleverest writing in the series, with the dialogue being quite funny in places. My favourite line being Kane asking, of no one in particular, what can she do with three Buck Rogers for an hour and a half? To be fair, there isn't as much plot to this one as the previous Ardala episode, but this episode scores in both its characterisation and is just a lot more fun to watch. The series again floundered without Ardala to provide some campy entertainment. Tweaky is missing, is entertaining, as it gives a starring role to the cock-headed Ambuquad, but Olympiad, the 2492 Olympics in space, a dream of Jennifer, Buck's 20th century girlfriend, is alive and well, but oops, it's all a trap, and Space Rockers, a 25th century rock music episode about subliminal music implants, are all piss poor. Buck's duel to the death sounds better than it is, and even B-movie vet William Smith as the bad guy can't stop this episode from being a colossal bore. So, once again, it was up to the delightfully manipulative and devious Princess Ardala to return some life to the proceedings. Flight of the Warwitch was the show's two-hour finale for season one, and feeling that if the audience loved one campy goddess, they'd adore two, the producers recruit Julie Numa in the title role as Zarina, the titular Warwitch. Whilst returning from a dirty weekend with some woman we've never seen before, Buck spots a large gold ball in the middle of Vasquez Rocks, which, last I checked, was nowhere near Chicago. Some looped dialogue tells us that Ardala and the Draconians have been giving Earth some trouble lately, and Buck is sent in to investigate. Did we mention that the Draconians have been giving Earth some trouble lately? Dr. Hewer feels the need to point this out twice within the space of a minute, so I'm getting the impression it may be important. For some reason, the opening credits to this episode are extended, and the supplemental credits, telling you who the guest stars and writers and producers, etc., are, run for nearly five minutes, giving the opening a real feeling of being padded out. There's the usual unintentionally hilarious dialogue in these opening scenes as well. It sounds like a flying saucer, says Buck, when describing the ball, despite the fact he's already seen it.
Well, it was described as saucer-shaped, says Wilma, like stating the obvious is part of the job description. For some reason, instead of sending a directorate team to investigate, Hewer waits until Buck gets back before sending a scouting party. Why they keep banging on about it being saucer-shaped confuses me, as it's never saucer-shaped at all, instead being a giant football with headlights. A smaller orb emerges from the larger one, and Hewer takes it to the lab to be examined by the micro-magnifier, which sounds like something Dr. Doom would have. A chip is discovered within, and the bigger orb takes off back into space. Kane spies here of the device, and Ardala decides that if Earth wants it, then she wants it also. After Tiger Man has given her some love in, anyway. Sadly, Tiger Man has been assigned to one of her sisters. One would have thought Ardala would have had him killed after what he did last time, but okay, it's fine. Kane has ordered Ardala a new sex toy, Panther Man. This scene is in no way subtle, and it's quite a surprise that it got past the censors. It's also hysterical. Kane's spy, the one that tells Ardala about the saucer, is the most wooden actor ever seen in Book Rogers, and that's a hotly contested title. And Kane's reaction to Ardala's petulant strop about Tiger Man is hilarious, with Michael Ansara playing it for all it's worth in the understated comedy stakes. Adala, just to up those stakes, is introduced wearing nothing at all, the producers presumably feeling that all those clothes she normally wore got in the way. Back on Earth, Dr. Hewer has discovered the chip is from the planet Pendar, located in another universe. We know this because the word Pendar keeps flashing upon his computer. We then journey to this other universe where the Organians from Star Trek sit behind a desk and we discover Kodos, a courageous young man, is being held by Zarina in an effort to uncover the secrets of the Pendarians' defence shield, which the Zeds, the leader of which is Zarina, are trying to penetrate. The orb was sent by these people in an effort to find a military force that could help them against the Zads, who continue to attack the defence shield so Zarina can take control of Pendar. Zarina is indeed torturing Kodos, but it's a bloodless, harmless kind of TV torture from which he will suffer no ill effects. I was more captivated by Numar's clothes, which seem to have been heavily inspired by the Wicked Queen from Snow White. It's weird that another universe would get Disney films, but they all speak English, so... There are tearful farewells all round as Buck prepares to leave to journey through to the other universe, but of course our darling Kane have also broke the code and prepare to follow Buck, just as Dr. Hewer and Wilma arrive on the Draconia. That was lucky. The episode really starts to flag here, with lots of corridors, capture, escape, capture, repetitive scenes involving Zarina torturing Kodos, and Buck being perfect as usual, but the upshot is Buck and Ardala end up teaming up to stop Zarinda. Hensley gets some nice scenes, particularly when Buck tells her she needs to take the clothes off the guards they've captured, and they're sparring with Numa, but largely this is routine stuff from this point. More could have been made of Zorinda being a warrior woman and Ardala being a spoiled child, but rather predictably Zorinda takes one look at Buck and starts quivering in her Snow Queen underwear, a scene that was played out in almost every episode that may have worked better if Gerard didn't come across as a smug football player most of the time. There's some neat SFX work and a curious lack of stock footage, but it's the set design that lets the side down. Whilst budgetary constraints forgive Pendar looking exactly like Earth, the extras coming straight out of central casting, and the reuse of costumes and props from Battlestar Galactica, there really is no excuse for the lack of imagination in the set design. Nothing looks like we're in another universe. The computers, corridors, equipment, motorcycle helmets, food and drink all look like Earth normal. 
Compare this to Star Trek, where Bill Tice at least attempted to make costumes look alien, or Doctor Who in the 70s, which, on a budget of £3.59, managed to make convincing alien starships like that of the Zygons. I'd rather have a surplus of imagination and lack of money than money with no passion. Flight of the War Witch feels padded. The extra money spent on the FX implies this was designed to be a theatrical release to cash on the success of the pilot, but for whatever reason that never happened. The acting is quite subpar, the dialogue not particularly inspired. It's not a bad swan song for our darler. If the show had any respect for the intelligence of its audience, this union between the Draconians and the Earth could have led to some interesting story developments. But the retooling the show received in the second season meant we would never see our darler and Kane again in the show. I may return to Buck Rogers at some future point, perhaps looking at the revamped season 2, along with other examples of retooled shows that didn't work. Ultimately, though, Buck Rogers in the 25th century is an entertaining diversion from a bygone era, much like Buck himself. The performances in the movie are better than they would be in the series that followed, with Gerard especially spending most of the series looking quite bored, although to be fair, he didn't really get a lot to do with the character. After the pilot, Buck is rather boring. He's never wrong, he makes no mistakes, and he's resolutely bland. He never harbours ill will, never dislikes anything or anyone, he's good at everything, and every single woman he meets throws themselves at him, and every man admires him. Even those that don't like him learn to admire him. Book aside, the series is a good example of the kind of TV sci-fi they don't really make anymore. Not as po-faced as Galactica, nor as formulaic as the TV version of Logan's Run, but Rogers shows that as much as science fiction can and should be about big ideas, sometimes there's nothing wrong with rocket ships, ray guns and robots. enjoyed that little musical interlude of the original opening theme to the show rather than the singy-songy version by Kip Lennon. I've had a couple of emails since the last episode that I, I wish to share with you because these people were good enough to email in, so I feel it is only my duty to share that with the world. The Palace of Glittering Cylons came in from David A. Pascarella. Dear Andy, David says, I just wanted to drop a few lines to let you know I have been greatly enjoying your episodes of The Palace of Glittering Delights. Typically, I listen to podcasts at work, and your last episode, the commentary on Battlestar Galactica, turned around a pretty lousy day at the office. It was really nice to hear your wife on the episode as well. You guys made a great team, and you truly are a lucky man. Well, yes, I know. She's pretty cool. As evidenced by how cool Angela is, she didn't even remember uh, recording that episode. David continues, I love Battlestar Galactica, and it holds a special place in my heart. 
I remember many evenings as a seven-year-old engaging in the age-old struggle with my mother to allow me to stay up late to watch it. Whilst I won sometimes, I more than often lost. The worst part was that my bedroom was half hour into the programme, so I would see the first half, and then not until several years later, when the show was in syndication, see the entire run. Is there any possibility of a follow-up episode that may touch on some of the other events in the series? I would very much look forward to it. I have considered doing a commentary for Mission Galactica The Cylon Attack, which was the second theatrical release, but I'm not averse to doing more Galactica. I think it, uh, it may be fun to look at Galactica a little bit further down the line. Best wishes, David Pascarella. Well, thank you very much, David. I greatly appreciate that. I love that David puts his location as Staten Island, New York. It really does boggle my mind that there are people in New York that listen to this drivel, but I appreciate you doing it. Chris Franklin has emailed in. Your favourite Martians was his heading. Andy. At first I thought you were just going to cover the 80s TV series War of the Worlds, but I was glad to see you cover all incarnations of the property. The PAL movie was a staple of local TV Saturday-Sunday matinees when I was young, and for some reason my entire family seemed to watch it when it was on. I recall being freaked out when an alien hand came through the window after the female lead, and my mum covering my eyes. This is why I was nervous to go and see E.T., as he had similar-looking hands. The spaceships and sound effects for the 53 movie are still iconic, although you're right, the cast is kind of bland. That was my first exposure to War of the Worlds. I was excited to see a TV series was based on the movie, but after a few episodes I found it too schlocky and gross. There was a lot of bad syndicated TV in the late 80s. Superboy barely held my interest in its first season, and then there was the groan-inducing My Secret Identity. I think I lumped War of the Worlds in with the rest of these rather cheap-looking shows. Maybe I should reconsider. Uh, I'm going to step out the email a little minute, though, to say, Chris, no. (laughs) I think your opinion of it will probably remain the same. The show is schlocky and cheap-looking. It is a B-movie science fiction television show. What I enjoyed about it was that it reveled in that. But I do think that if that was your initial impression of it, I don't think age has been particularly kind to it. I enjoy it on the level of B-movie schlock. But if you didn't enjoy it on that level, there's probably not much else there for you to go off, to be honest with you. Chris continues, years later I read the novel. And I too have to wonder why someone hasn't done this book right, including the correct locale and setting. Orson Welles' radio broadcast can be seen as the precursor to found footage movies. I listened to Welles' broadcast a few years back and it holds up very well. I don't know where I was in the 70s, but I never heard that rock concept album. You're not the only one to say that, Chris. Where, where were you people? You know, that was huge. Everybody in England had a copy of that record. I don't understand what you guys were listening to. Probably Rick Springfield. I'm not really sure how my kids feel on Star Wars Rebels. I'm pretty sure they'll give it a shot, but they don't seem overly excited about it for some reason. Thanks for helping me through another Monday, Chris. Well, you're very welcome, Chris. I'm just going to do a little addendum to Star Wars Rebels, the first episode, an hour-long pilot, for want of a better word, called Spark of the Rebellion, aired just last weekend over here in the UK. I don't know when it heard in America. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed that first episode. I thought it was a lot of fun. It had an interesting narrative story arc. I thought the visuals were mostly pretty good, with the exception of the Wookiees, who looked like the, the plastic toy from the 1970s rather than actually being hurry. On the most part, that, that first hour-long episode was much better than those three teasers. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to watching the series, which starts in a week or so. Luke Giaconetti has emailed in. Andy and the other two members of the Mortaxian Triumvirate, which is a War of the Worlds gag. 
Just finished up your War of the World episode and had to write in great stuff all round. I read War of the Worlds as a kid, but I saw the movie first, so I never got into the book as much as I did the Time Machine or The Invisible Man. George Pal's movie is a personal favourite from my childhood. I still dig it to this day. The flying war machines are actually tripods walking on an invisible force, and they were a point of fascination for me as a child. The sound effect of the heat ray is iconic, and you can't help your ears perking up when you hear it. The TV series was a big deal for me as a young man, and my brother, mother and I watched it as appointment viewing every week. Using the Invasion of the Body Snatchers riff made for a more budget-conscious approach, but also drove the story in different directions. Much as you discussed the idea that the Martian used a more subtle approach to invasion, these aliens took it to another level, literally hiding in plain sight until their bodies started rotting. The image of the aliens bursting out of the sealed drums is an image that has stuck with me over the years, as well as the rising of the reactivated war machine seen every week in the opening credits. I bought the first season the day it was released on DVD. The second season is unwatchable to me, as far as I'm concerned. The second season is unwatchable. The Spielberg movie was also incredibly disappointing to me. I saw it on a triple feature with Madagascar and Wedding Crashes, and it was easily the worst movie of the three. Ghost Watch. I thank you for mentioning this. I've been hunting down this telefilm ever since reading about it on one of my favourite B-movie sites, The Bad Movie Report. Eventually I will snag a copy. This one tangentially reminds me of the American telefilm Special Bulletin, which offered a faux news report of a standoff involving a nuclear bomb in the harbour of Charleston. Great episode and keep watching the skies. Oh, wait. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, David. I've got another email from Tim Elliott that says, Greetings, Andrew. I thoroughly enjoyed your episode on War of the Worlds, something I never get bored of hearing, so thank you very much. I've read the book and I'm a big fan of Pal's film. I agree the book does sag somewhat in the middle compared to The Time Machine or The Invisible Man. I was also disappointed with Spielberg's version of War of the Worlds. I felt it was more interested in being a vehicle for Tom Cruise than a faithful adaptation of the novel. What did you think of Alan Moore basing his second volume of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen around War of the Worlds? I enjoyed it more than volume one. I've only ever read Volume 1 of Leader Extraordinary Gentleman. I'm tempted to read what, Volume 2 now. I know there's a War of the Worlds aspect to it. Uh, I'll give that. I think I've got it on the bookshelf. I'll have to have a look. Tim concludes with Can my top 10 Erwolf episodes be just around the corner? I don't think I'll do a top 10 Erwolf episode, but uh, there will be an Erwolf episode. Thanks. That's Tim Elliott. Oh, and he's from Texas. He puts where he's from as well. God, you're far and wide, aren't you? Mark Lax has emailed in saying War of the Worlds and Life in the Village. Hello, Andrew. I haven't read the H.G. Wells story, even though it's in my library and on my Kindle. I've been on a Sherlock Holmes kick, thanks to the collected editions, and War of the Worlds is next on my list. I've seen the two major movie versions and enjoyed them, but a literal adaptation taking place in the book's world would be very refreshing. It's interesting how each film and TV version were able to adapt to their times, Wells evoking the Victorian era and colonialism, Orson Wells, the second World War, Spielberg 9-11, etc. It's really a testament to H.G. Wells's work that while each adaptation may speak for itself, filmmakers keep coming back to the source material. Hopefully a faithful version will be on the tracks. I've also just binged what all 17 episodes of The Prisoner and found it brilliant, confusing and unlike anything I've ever seen on television. McGowan's idea of having it be a miniseries was the way to go. Whilst I enjoyed the entire series, watching a shorter version of the story would probably have been more suspenseful and to the point, although the point is debatable. I also feel the Hammer and Anvil episode was one of the best, although not in McGoohan's list of seven core episodes. I did like The Girl Who Was Death, 
which I know was basically a filler, but with its swinging 60s Casino Royale feel and homage to the old cliffhanger serials, I thought it was a lot of fun. I could discuss Fallout for decades, but I don't think anyone can really come up with a truly adequate interpretation. People will still be analysing this show for years to come. I've been really enjoying all your podcasts and trying to catch up. Be seeing you, Mark Lax. And that, other than an email from Chris about um, Rick Springfield... (laughs) Is, uh, is all we have in the mail sack for the Palace of Glittering Delights. He was shocked I didn't know who Rick Springfield was. Personally, I don't think I missed anything, having looked up that Jessie's Girl song, but maybe that's just me. I can still be reached on the Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com email address. And Facebook, Hey Kids as the first name, Comics as the surname, and I'm also on Twitter as Leyland underscore Andrew, if you want to join me there. Your presence would be greatly appreciated. Next time on Palace of Glittering Delights, I've not got a clue. Whatever, whatever tickles my ivories. Thank you for joining me. Thank you everyone who emailed in. I do appreciate it. And I will see you... Well, no, I won't, will I? You'll hear me next time I release an episode. Thank you very much. Goodbye. (laughs) 